Welcome to Specs Speaks Science, the scientific podcast hosted by scientists and industry experts. From highlighting the hidden chemistry in our everyday lives to discussing relative industry topics, Specs Speaks Science looks to deliver informative content to the scientific community. With that, please enjoy this installment of Specs Speaks Science. Hi, and welcome to today's podcast. Today we're going to talk about how heavy metals get into our food and our beverages. When we talk about heavy metals, we're talking about the big five, cadmium, lead, arsenic, mercury, and chromium. And we can be exposed to them from several different ways. The first one is injection. So you can get exposed to heavy metals through drugs, pharmaceuticals, or accidental exposures. Another way to get heavy metals in your life is inhalation through air pollution, both indoor air pollution, outdoor air pollution, from paint fumes, from drugs and pharmaceuticals that are inhaled, and from smoking, whether it's being vaping or traditional cigarettes. Then there's transdermal exposure. This is from things you put on your skin or go through your skin, cosmetics, health and beauty products, drugs and pharmaceuticals like patches and things like that, or accident exposure where you touch something and it is absorbed through your skin. And of course, one of the biggest ways, ingestion, through your food, your water, your drugs and pharmaceuticals, and any accidental exposures. Now, one of the, the biggest sources for um, the, the transfer exposure to toxic compounds is dust. It can have all of the elements. It can have earth elements like sodium, uh, lead, potassium. It could have pesticides, phthalates, organic pollutants, uh, and this all gets into your body through inhalation or ingestion. Now, the, the top five heavy metals have something called oxidation states. These are the positive or negative states which the element is m more abundant in. For all of the heavy metals, they have positive oxidation states, like arsenic is three and five are the most common oxidation states. So these means they have a positive charge and they will be attracted to negatively charged items. So what happens is if you have a material that is negatively charged like plastic and you open a plastic bottle, a soda bottle, a water bottle, you will attract dust, hair, skin, heavy metals, anything that is negatively charged. And this is something called the triboelectric series or the triboelectric effect. You have extreme positive charge materials, things like your wool, your heavy metals, human hair, paper, dust, cotton, wool, so most of your fabrics, things like that. And then on the other end of the scale, you have a very negative charged materials, like your plastics, your polyethylene, your bottles, your polypropylene soda bottles, things like that, your PVC, your Teflon. So all of this is more negatively charged. So you create a little bit of a, a, a charge by opening up a bottle. It attracts the positively charged heavy metals and they get sucked into the bottle. So it's kind of like that game when you played when you were a kid. You would have hair, which is very positively charged. You do, you'd have a plastic comb, which is negatively charged. You'd comb your hair very quickly, and then suddenly you would see the attraction of the hair to the comb because you've created uh, the opposite of charges, and they attract each other. Now, where do these heavy metals come from? Well, basically, there are 
uh, three routes or three types of sources. There are unintentional sources. These are natural deposits. You've heard of natural deposits of lead. You've heard of natural deposits of mercury. Elemental deposits, bioaccumulation. So if you have uh, a source of heavy metal contamination or heavy metal a natural source and the plants and the animals in that area absorb it and accumulate it, that's bioaccumulation. Then you have quasi-intentional sources. These are often byproducts of human activities, either current or historical. So this is when you see things like uh, heavy metals being exposed in old piping, so lead in old piping or lead in old paint. That at one point it was cultural, it was historical to use a heavy metal product, but now it impacts future generations, like lead and gasoline. Then you have environmental contamination or cross-contamination. Maybe there's mining activities on the top of a mountain, and then the water flows down into agricultural fields, so that's kind of an environmental contamination or cross-contamination. Or you can also have it where one field is an organic with no pesticides, the field next door is a normal field with pesticides, and you get cross-contamination. And finally, you also have process contamination. Maybe a particular product, like a flower or something like that, is ground, and it's ground in equipment that's aging, while the metals in the equipment start to wear into the products. Then you have, finally, intentional contamination. There was a direct intent. It, this could be adulteration. Maybe a manufacturer wants to make their product more bulky because they have a economically valuable product and, and they want to bulk it out, something like we saw with the melanie meme in the milk products in, in China. So they add something, they adulterate it in order to bulk it up to get more money for the product that they're doing. Uh, you also see this in things like honey, where they'll they'll add things. Or you have the, the other side of the coin, which is counterfeiting, where you, the product is not real at all, and it's totally counterfeited. There's also over or uh, over addition or addition without a listing a product. So, for instance, if a, a mix, a baking mix, is allowed to have so many grams of sodium, but they over add the sodium to bulk out the mix, well, it isn't is intended. You can have sodium in a mix, but now they've added much more than than was originally allowed. So that's an over addition. Now there are heavy metal limits put out by most regulatory agencies. FDA has a bottled water limit for most of the heavy metals. Uh, drinking water also has uh, limits for heavy metals. But there are in some cases things like lead, which the, the limits uh, keep getting withdrawn and, and reinstated. So at some points, the, we have very little guidance as what's the appropriate limit for the different heavy metals. But most of them are in the PPB or, or low PPM levels. I'm going to talk about some of the individual characteristics of the, the heavy metals. First, we'll talk about arsenic. Now, arsenic does have several natural sources. There are elemental deposits of arsenic in areas of India, the western United States, South America. In some cases, it's subject to bioaccumulation. We've heard about arsenic in rice. Some bacteria do accumulate arsenic, and there are different seaweeds that have organic arsenic in them. In some cases, these are nutrients to some of these organisms. They also can be byproducts. There was a lot of arsenate 
pesticides over the decades. So it was very common for lead arsenate to be used in fields and to be used in orchards, especially apple orchards. So there was a historical use of arsenic pesticides. It is also a byproduct of lead production. And intentional use, sometimes it's used as a traditional medicine. And even in modern medicine, there are uses for arsenic. Cadmium is found in fertilizer. It's also bioaccumulated in organ meats and seafood. It's used as a colorant in some cases, especially for glass and plastic. It's a stabilizer. It can be used as a coating for iron or steel, and it's a byproduct of zinc production. But illegally, it can be used for a colorant for counterfeiting or used as a legal stabilizer or colorant. Mercury, we all have heard about bioaccumulation of mercury in seafood. It is a byproduct of silver refining, and it's been in industrial use for hundreds of years. It's traditionally been used as a medicine, as a cosmetic, and up until the last century, it was used in fillings for dental fillings. And then finally, lead, very ubiquitous in the environment. Unfortunately, all the lead that we really have exposure to is through human activities. Lead itself, natural deposits, really wouldn't have been mobilized into the environment if we did not dig them up and use them. There's been a widespread use of lead for paint, cosmetics. Everyone's seen the portraits of Elizabeth I with the white complexion that she has painted on her face. That is a, a lead compound. It was used for metallurgy. It was used as a food additive, especially in Rome. You, they would sugar their wine with lead sugars to make sour wine more palatable. Lead, as I said before, with arsenic have been used widespread as pesticides. It's also part of wear metals for different metallic mixes. And up through uh, the 1980s, it was leaded gasoline, and you would have lead in your water pipes and lead in paint. It is a, a co-product of silver mining as well. Now, unfortunately, lead historically has been used, like I said, as a cosmetic, as a paint, as a stabilizer, a color additive, a sweetener, an antibacterial. And to this day, it sometimes is used to counterfeit uh, different spices and other products. Now we're going to look at some individual cases and where they come from. One of the studies we've done over the last decade was gourmet salts. This is a case of natural sources or byproducts. So these salts were contaminated because they were uh, part of the natural source for the salt or they were uh, accumulated as a byproduct of contamination processes. We had 14 gourmet salts, all different price ranges, from cheap table salt and laboratory salt all the way through different colored salts, and we tested them by ICPMS. We had some very exotic salts. We had some cypress black salts that look like crystal pyramids. We had gray salts. We had some aged salts that were aged in, in wine barrels. We had pink Himalayan salts. And we, like I said, we also had plain old white table salt. And what we found was some of the darker salts actually did have some measurable amounts of things like lead. The black salt had almost a 1 ppm of lead. So did some of the Himalayan pink salts or the oak salts, the ones that were in the wine barrels. They had about 1 ppm of lead. There were also small amounts of cadmium and small amounts of mercury in our salts. What we did find, though, it depends on how much you use it. So if you're going to use about one teaspoon of salt in a day over the course of a day or maybe a teaspoon in, in cooking, the limit for a print finished products is a 
about 10 micrograms for one tablespoon of, of salt for lead, and the daily limit is 75 micrograms. So for something like our highest one in our, our gray salt, you would have about eight micrograms in one tablespoon, which it was about 11% of your daily limit. So about 10 or 11% would be just from a teaspoon of salt. Some other products that we looked at, which were cases of bioaccumulation or byproducts, were uh, fish and chocolate. For our fish study, we looked at tuna, marlin, swordfish, and salmon, all different prices from farm to wild, and we used ICPMS. And for our chocolate, we had dark milk and, and chocolate liqueur, and those were seven samples. Again, we tested by ICPMS. For the fish, we were primarily looking at mercury. And as expected, the longer, slower-growing fish had the highest amount of mercury. In a four-ounce serving, our marlin steaks had 329 micrograms of mercury. That would be about 4,700% uh, of your allowable daily serving for methylmercury in, in a week. So you would have 4,000%, almost 5,000% of your weekly allowance. When we looked at the chocolates, we did find, again, we found lead. Lead is a very, a very widespread heavy metal. And we found it mostly in the darker chocolate. So our dark chocolate had higher amounts, about three micrograms of lead in a regular-sized chocolate bar. So that's about 40 gram servings. What we did find, we also found some arsenic. We had one chocolate bar, which would have had about 5% our daily limit for arsenic, about 8% of our daily limit for cadmium, and almost up to 50% of our daily limit for lead, and about 50% of a daily limit for lead for if you calculated it to the weight of a child, or about 5% for a daily allowance for an adult. So those dark chocolates had the higher incidence of heavy metals. Next, we'll look at a study of contamination and byproducts. As I said earlier, Lead arsenate was one of the most common pesticides in use for orchards, so like apple orchards. So we decided to look at alcoholic ciders, which are based on apples. We looked at 13 alcoholic ciders, and we looked at European and American, and we tested them by ICPMS. What we found was that some ciders did have arsenic in them and lead in them. It really, again, depended on how much lead or how much um, arsenic was in your total serving, not just micrograms per gram or micrograms per, per mil. So for a, a typical serving, which was like about a bottle, about a 12-ounce bottle, if we said that you were going to have one bottle, for the most part, your lead levels and your arsenic levels were fairly low. But if you were going to have a few drinks, if you were going to have a, a couple, maybe even a six-pack, then you would start to get up to 20% your daily, uh, daily limit for lead. For arsenic, it was worse. If you had a six-pack of one particular cider, you're going to have about 50% of your daily limit for arsenic if you had that six-pack over the course of a, a day or a course of a weekend. Now we're going to look at another one of the products that we had a lot of fun looking at was hot sauces. Here we looked at all different price ranges. We had all different types of hot sauces. I know we've talked about hot sauces in some previous podcasts. Well, hot sauces are a target because of their spice content. Then there's a lot of adulterants that are in spices. You can have things like chalk or additional sauce. We said, uh, talked about adding a lot of salt to bulk out a product. It could have sand or silica. 
You can have sawdust, charcoal, brick powder, depending on what they're trying to match or the spice they're trying to, to, to copy or counterfeit. You can have all different types of, of spice adulteration. For the hot sauce though, primarily we found high lead and high chromium levels. One particular hot sauce was from a local uh, fast food restaurant of ours. And uh, I guess I should have known it might be a little bit odd because the packets of hot sauce were bright pink. So if you're like me and you put hot sauce on everything, you would use one or two of these packages, which would be about 20 grams of hot sauce. What we found is that I was exposing myself to about 21 parts per million of lead from those two packets of hot sauce. So that was about 30% of my allowable daily limit for lead. So it was a kind of a high amount of lead in those two packets of hot sauce. And one last thing I want to talk about is uh, Flint, Michigan, because water is a significant portion of the uh, American exposure to heavy metals. Now, Flint, Michigan occurred in 2014 through 2016. It started when Flint decided to stop pumping water from the Detroit Water and Sewage Facility to save money. At that time, that particular facility was showing about 2.3 micrograms per liter of lead, which was well within safety limits. By 2014 in April, they had switched their water to the Flint River water source, and later that year, they started seeing brown water being reported, and scientists started to find high lead levels. 2016, Virginia Tech found that 40% of Flint homes had high lead levels, and one recorded level was 27 micrograms per liter of lead. So what they found out was that contamination is measured by the 90th percentile of lead exposure, meaning 90% of the homes are below that threshold and 10% above it. And the action level for that is about 15 micrograms per liter. For bottled water, it's 5 micrograms per liter. And the, as I said, the EPA is 15 micrograms per liter. What they found was the 90th percentile from the previous water source, as we said, was 2.3, so well under bottled water and drinking water action levels. But Flint, the 90th percentile, was 27. And the highest result they found with a Virginia Tech sample was 158 micrograms per liter. The highest recorded sample was 13,000 micrograms per liter. Now, the EPA designates anything over 5,000 micrograms per liter as toxic waste. So that was almost three times the toxic waste limit. The problem is Flint is not the only issue when it comes to drinking water. Only nine states routinely report safe lead levels in their water. And 41 states have exceeded state action levels within the last few years. There are 3,000 areas in the U.S. that have lead levels higher than Flint, up to twice as high as Flint. So Flint was not the only problem. It was a symptom of a, of a larger problem. And at the end of the whole Flint crisis, as it started to die down, in Newark, New Jersey, there was a news story that lead in school taps actually exceeded Flint. Well, in that same period of time, parents in another New Jersey school were sent water quality testing results. And one of those water quality testing results had a faucet with 850 ppb uh, samples. So we're talking that the, the high result was 158, the average high result in Flint, a Newark school was 558, and the central New Jersey water sample was 850. So this was not an isolated incident. So how do we get all this exposure? 
Well, our total exposure comes from everything we consume and, and are exposed to in our lives. Everything from medications, our supplements, our food, our beverages, the spices, the condiments. So all that becomes part of our total food exposure. So individual products are not necessarily the danger. It's the combined exposure from all of those products. So if we were to do a kind of a fantasy meal where you have supplements, maybe some hemp oil, some calcium supplements, vitamins, you have breakfast, you have some maybe some French toast, coffee, milk, bacon, and maybe lunch. Now, if you're a scientist and you travel to conferences, you know you pick up a lot of fast food. So maybe you go to a Chinese restaurant, you have some chicken stir fry, some hot sauce, maybe a beer. At that night, you go and you have a salad and maybe a marlin steak, some rice and chocolate and some wine to, to finish it off. And throughout the day, you have some cider, some water, maybe a granola bar or two. Now, you're looking at basically for that breakfast and for throughout the day, you're looking through a huge amount of different exposures. Arsenic for the daily limit, you'd be looking at a 21%. For cadmium, it would be 70%. For lead, it would be 75% your, your daily limit. So you would be really, you'd be very high for your exposure. So it, as I said before, it's not just the individual heavy metals. It's not individual components. It's everything that you are exposed to in your life from what you breathe in, the medicines you take, the supplements you take, the, the spices that you put in your food, the food itself. So it's a composite. And no industry or no organization has ever really given clear guidelines on what the total from all exposure levels from all different sources should be like. You get advice on different individual products and different exposure levels for um, different situations, but not necessarily as an overhaul kind of exposure to heavy metals. I hope you've enjoyed our talk about heavy metals exposure in food and beverages, and you'll join us again for our next podcast. Thanks a lot. Specs Speak Science is presented by Specs. We provide quality assurance and research tools for the analytical life science community. Our mission is to support scientists for a safer tomorrow. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the podcast and subscribing for future installments. Similar content such as application notes, research studies, webinars, and more can be found at specs.com. Thank you for listening to Specs Speak Science, and we look forward to bringing you future episodes.